0: All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. And today I have back on the podcast, Mr. Menno Hanselmans. Menno, how are you doing?
1: Hey, well, good to be on the show again.
0: Awesome. So uh, we have some cool topics today, and it's all mainly related to kind of diet psychology and diet management. So uh, we will jump right in. And the first topic that I kind of want to cover with you is... The topic of refeeds, diet breaks and basically non-linear dieting in general because especially in recent years I think if you look at the landscape of coaches, practitioners then it's getting more and more ground and a lot of people are seeing really nice benefits from it and a couple of studies also came out on that which a lot of people point to as well as okay there is emerging evidence that they are really beneficial for all kinds of things And you're, I believe, one of the few people in this circle of evidence-based practitioners that are not as great of proponents of these methods. So in a very general sense, could you give a short overview on your general stance on diet breaks and refeeds? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I think I'm not a fan of uh, either in general. With uh,
0: refeeds, the main thing is that
1: they're regulated by leptin, and that's the proposed mechanism. But we see in research that leptin is regulated uh, exclusively by cumulative energy balance and total body fat percentage because leptin is secreted by adipose tissue body fat mass so it's your total body fat mass that mostly determines how much leptin you secrete now you can temporarily increase this by increasing energy balance but as soon as you go back down into energy deficits you uh, negate that effect plus if you look at the the effect on energy expenditure uh, it's it's marginal not to say trivial. You're looking at like a 5% increase in energy expenditure for something like 40% overfeeding often. So basically you, you have a day where you're basically getting fat or you're storing at least a, a ton of glycogen. In the end, it doesn't matter really if you store glycogen or, or fat because in the end you'll have to get that all off again before you start losing fat. So and in the end, total energy balance still applies. So uh, basically, it's a very high cost. You're, you're putting the fat loss on hold for uh, quite some period with uh, literally zero research demonstrating that this has any uh, long-term beneficial effects. So it, it's largely wishful thinking. I mean, it's a very easy sell, right? You, you have some mechanism, leptin, you tell people, well, you know, you get better results if you, you um, do your diet, but you can also have a pancake day and you stuff yourself with pancakes and that's all great. And not only that but you know leptin so you lose more fat and you know that's that's very um a a very easy sell but it's simply not reality and i don't know many people who maintain six-pack leveliness very long term like years on end uh, that do successfully on on these kind of uh, um, diet breaks or refeeds but especially refeeds because i think they're very um they basically teach you bad diet habits i mean if you tell people hey i'm on a diet and i'm basically Mm going very low in energy intake for most of the time but then one day a week uh, i go crazy and i massively overfeed what do you think and that is basically the description of bulimia you know so a lot of these behaviors uh, of like extreme cyclical um, energy intakes or um, non-linear energy intakes uh, they they actually have a lot in common with uh, uh, eating disorder patterns eating the patterns you see in eating disorders and i think you gravitate towards that. And uh, a lot of people in contest prep, uh, myself also, uh, it's, it's very easy to, to fall into that trap where you're overeating, crash dieting, and then as a result, overeating again, and you basically, you end up yo-yoing, uh, but you don't call it a yo-yo diet because you think you're in control because you're, you're measuring stuff. But actually, um, you're basically doing the same things that a lot of uh, people in, in gen pop struggle with.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, culturally, because you've been in this industry for longer than I have, what do you think is kind of the background of this? Is this something that people gravitate to traditionally for a long time? Refeeds and cuz I I know that carb cycling and these methods have been around for a long time. So does this have this long kind of history from what you've seen? No, this
1: is this is to my understanding purely a bodybuilding thing. I don't know any successful like dieting uh group that successfully employs refeeds. It's if you you look at like uh blue zones or any any type of diet, you know, like how people naturally eat or uh, just groups of people that have successfully lost weight on any kind of diet. You don't see refeeds in any of that, any popular diet strategy, you know, like even Atkins, Mediterranean, stuff that's not really successful, but still, you know, popular. You don't don't see that. It's really a bodybuilding thing. The, uh, The leptin, carbs, refeed ID. In general, uh, bodybuilders are really, really obsessed with macronutrients rather than food choices and sustainability and have very, very little background in, uh, in diet psychology. It's usually just uh, intuitions. Uh, and that's, that goes for most people because in, in bodybuilding, people, uh, and not just bodybuilding, but in general, people gravitate towards hard sciences like biology, chemistry, math, math in particular, because it's uh, irrefutable. To a large extent and you can identify mechanisms really well and they don't consider psychology this is something that the field of psychology has struggled with for a long time they don't consider psychology on the same level of science because it's a more um uh, you know a, fuzz, a fuzzy science is uh, as it's often called but it is in fact an empirical science and you can do these experiments that are replicable and uh, have very high predictive power in people Uh, it's just an area like diet psychology where people don't really think of looking at research but there is a ton of research in fact the field of psychology in general absolutely dwarfs nutrition and exercise science even combined so Uh, You know, there is is a lot to be learned from that. And uh, you often see in psychology as a general theme that our intuitions on how we think we should act and how we humans are internally is not accurate at all. And that's called the the introspection illusion, which is by the Freud era that also gave psychology its bad name, where uh, basically the idea was, if you just sit in the chair someone asks you but how do you feel about that and you just look deep enough inside then all the secrets all of your life's traumas all of you know your life experiences everything that goes on in your body you can just um you can just look deep enough into your brain and see it all and you know exactly how we function the reality is that our conscious thinking the part of our brain that we are aware of what goes on in uh, what's called system two of our brain or mostly our prefrontal cortex is a very very limited part of what we can actually identify and if you can just think of like how how do we perform movements uh we, we have no idea like how does your visual cortex um work why do we have optical illusions and why uh can you not uh, negate them even if you know it's an optical illusion you still see them you know these things show that so much of what happens in our brain generally estimated to be over 99 percent, is not things that we are uh, conscious of and you have to do research in people to that to find out how that actually works
0: mm-hmm. okay So uh, what happened with the whole refeed and diabric sort of uh, theme is a couple of bodybuilding coaches, practitioners who always had a lot of challenges with competitors getting ready, for example, for a bodybuilding contest. They saw, okay, people tend to lose a lot of lean mass. Women lose their menstrual cycle, a lot of metabolic adaptation. People have to crush themselves on crazy low calories, tons of hunger, rebound after the diet. It's just really dirty business by the end of it. And they started implementing these refeeds some diet breaks, high days, low days, all of these things. And anecdotally, they started reporting benefits, which of course we cannot contest because we don't see exactly what happens with their competitors. And then in recent years, at least one or two studies came out, which seemed at first at least to support these uh, findings. So Correct me if I'm wrong, but the two ones that I see most commonly brought up is the Matador study, and then there was Bill Campbell's uh, research that was done this spring, I think, in 2020. So those are the two ones that I see most commonly being referenced. Um, What are your, if you're familiar with those, which I know you are, (laughs) what is your take on those uh, lines of research? I'll
1: go into the uh, Bill Campbell study because actually uh – Actually, it's interesting because I'm doing another study with Bill Campbell right now that we finished up and we're publishing uh, very soon. We should have that. Uh, well, I can't make any promises, but we're presenting in, a, he's presenting in September at the uh, International Sports Sciences Nutrition Conference. He's going to present the results, so I can shed some light into it. Basically, we replicated the Matador study. But I'll first, I'll go into his previous research, which wasn't really on um, uh, diet breaks per se. So basically, uh, the practice of same energy intake throughout the week, twenty-five percent deficit, or the more uh, typical like um bro bodybuilding uh, which is often seen in uh, practice in pro bodybuilders where they uh, diet really hard in the midweek in this case 35 percent energy deficit and then in the weekends they uh they didn't actually refeed like this was called a refeed but it depends a bit on how you term it because they just ate maintenance energy intake so they, it was more i guess uh, a weekend diet break most people that do this actually overeat quite a bit during the weekends and then are forced to be in, in very high energy deficit throughout the, the midweek so i think this this practice would be uh better but basically the main uh conclusion was that i think they uh saw greater preservation of fat-free uh, mass but the thing is that they did the measurements uh with uh, uh both body metrics and in body uh after the refeed so basically they were more um, glycogen loaded and there's a lot of research showing that if you do a measurement like that when someone is in greater energy balance and especially if they have more carbs and which I think people were uh, instructed to to, uh, to have the extra energy mostly from carbohydrates then you see that they hold more lean body mass but it's not muscle mass it's just the glycogen and associated water storage that comes with eating more carbohydrates and energy in general so it doesn't really say much about the efficacy of um, the diets. What would have been much more interesting um, is if they had done the measurement after the diet period in both groups, like after the five days. Because then you're looking at both when they're actually in energy deficit. Now it's like looking at one where they're not in energy deficit and the other group where they are. So uh, it completely confounds the uh, the measurements. So I, I don't think that study really uh, tells us that much. Uh, it's probably if you look at these results, they're they're very much in line with both diets being exactly equally effective, but the measurement just being skewed uh, towards greater glycogen and water storage in the refeed group. So that's that's also what most research finds in general on uh, cyclical or uh, nonlinear energy intakes. There have been several uh, systematic reviews, uh, even a, I think three meta analyses now, meta analyses that um, all show that nonlinear diets of various types of alternate day fasting. Um, various types of, you know, how you call it, you know, it depends a bit on, um, you know, when, when does intermittent fasting uh, start becoming non-linear dieting, or when does a diet break become, or when does a refeed become a diet break, you know, these kind of things. Uh, in general, the, the theme is that overall, it, it doesn't really matter much how you distribute your energy intake, at least not in sedentary individuals. That's, I think, a key point. Um, yeah, all that matters is the, the total macronutrient intake across the week and um, uh, what, what this energy is. Uh, balance was in both groups so i think this study is very much in line with that and not really a strong argument in favor of
0: refeeds mm-hmm. if 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 you wanted to play like devil's advocate a little bit um or if, if you were to see it in the most favorable lighting possible if someone is doing a refeed uh on two days like let's say typical like monday through fr- friday someone is eating lower calories on the weekends they're eating higher calories and the uh, weekly calorie average is the same uh, what could be one mechanism that could allow someone to maybe hold on to more lean mass doing that? Or there's just simply no logical explanation for that. What do you think?
1: Yeah, that's basically a, a big part of my uh, my problem with... Uh this research and this these hypotheses, there is literally no proposed mechanism. None. There is n- n- there is not a single paper that has offered any plausible explanation of why this would uh, benefit um, mu- muscle retention or, or anything like that. Like if it was with training, like you have more energy intake in the anabolic window periods, something like that. You know that could that could work, but that's not specifically what these studies investigated. Uh, And the the leptin mechanism doesn't make any sense because we see that it responds to cumulative energy balance and it goes right back down afterwards. So it's very unlikely that that would help at all. And it also doesn't explain why most studies don't find these effects. So the the lack of a plausible mechanism is in fact, a very big uh, part of why I don't put much credence in in any benefits of refeeds or diet breaks. Also, it's uh, very interesting to see that we actually have a ton of research on specifically this type of uh, diet In terms of diet adherence because you know that's generally the the next claim like okay maybe it doesn't benefit you physiologically but it probably does psychologically because it's a break right you know diet break you get some psychological relief intuitively it sounds very uh, plausible that this uh, should help with diet adherence Um, but we have a ton of research including a meta-analysis that shows that this exact diet pattern of eating very strictly monday to friday and then going more being more lenient in the weekend is associated with terrible diet success. And I see this in so many people. This is one of the most consistent things that people that don't have high consistency in their diets, they are not successful in the long run. If you just think for yourself, if especially if you have no restrictions in the weekend, that's like a recipe for disaster because anyone that's dieted for long-term and has experimented with a lot of social eating events can tell you it is easy in a single meal, let alone one or two days, to undo the entire week of fat loss. Like easy, especially if you go to a buffet or something like that, uh, it, it's very easy. Sometimes you even see fat gain, that's, vi- that's typically rare though, but it's very easy to just negate the week's deficit and be basically back at square one. So you're you just end up maintaining that week and you basically die the whole week to be able to fit that buffet uh, into your weekly plan.
0: Yeah. Uh, do you think there is any, any plausibility in what some people describe. So I remember listening to uh, the podcast that you guys did with Danny Lennon, Eric Helms and you. And there Eric was describing how he was going very low in calories for five days. So he was eating like 1200 calories. And on two days, he was eating 2500. And um, I think his explanation was that at those very, very low body fat levels, you need to create that really powerful kind of quote-unquote deficit stimulus almost to really deplete those glycogen levels and to really dig in. And even though the weekly calories come out of the same place, it helps to kind of get rid of those final bits of quote-unquote stubborn fat. Um, Sounds kind of bro-sciencey, but do you think there could be something there? So I had had a... Five days at 1,200 calories, which was just basically veggies and protein for me. Yeah, and then I had two days at 2,500 in a row. So I had a five and two setup. Uh, there is going to be points in a diet where the body is so resistant to fat loss that you have to deplete glycogen way past what you think is reasonable and create a large energy gap uh, to what would be ideal from like an energy availability perspective to effectively lose fat when all that remains is very, quote unquote, stubborn fat.
1: Yeah, I have a ton of, I have a ton of respect for Eric, but I that... If that was his explanation, that doesn't make much sense to me. Um, yeah, it, it's, uh, I mean, tons of people have gotten lean on low energy deficits. In fact, that is by far one of the biggest trends of success, I think, in modern uh, competitive bodybuilding, that people don't crash diet anymore. It used to be the case that, you know, 10, 20 years ago, people would try to uh, do a contest prep in like eight weeks or 12 weeks. And now it's more like six months. And in part, it's because people have to get leaner, like modern pro level conditioning is simply verging on essential body fat stores. That's, that's just the way it is. Uh, but it's also because people are dieting much more conservatively and they retain a lot more muscle mass. It's, sim- it's simply more effective. There's been a couple studies that if you're really lean, uh, crash dieting really doesn't pay off. You just lose a lot more muscle mass and not that much more um, fat.
0: Hey, guys, just a 20-second interruption. If you're interested in working together with me and having me in your corner as a coach for your fat loss and muscle-building goals, you can read up on the services I offer at ablessd.com, or you can email me on the address in the show description. That's it. Let's continue with the show. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what do you think about the Metador study then? And maybe you can comment as well. If if you're allowed to at all, like why or how you would plan on replicating that study, or if you did that already, I'm I'm not sure if you already completed it.
1: Yeah, the uh, the Matador study is basically exactly what we um, what we replicated, and uh, our, our results differ from uh, the Matador study. So we'll first, get into um, what they did. Basically, I think they had. Um, something like a 14-week uh, weight loss diet uh no no it wasn't 14 weeks I came up let me pull up the exact numbers
0: 16 I think yeah
1: yeah 16 weeks either in one go or with a two-week diet break at maintenance every two weeks so that's that's actually a lot of diet breaks you know it's every two weeks you have a break for two weeks so you spend as much time breaking as uh, as actually dieting and they were supposed to be in 33 percent energy deficit uh, but in contrast to every other study including an earlier study by uh, Art Green et al. in 2013 uh, which which did not find any of these effects, which found that like most literature the effects were the same as long as total intakes across the week or average over time were the same. The Matador study is like the one exceptional study and and therefore by far the most uh, popular and controversial, where the diet break group had better results both in terms of body composition and in terms of retention of uh, resting energy expenditure, which also other studies have looked at and not fine so interestingly uh, you would think that uh, the diet breaks would help preserve muscle mass but non-significantly they actually lost a bit more fat-free mass in the diet break group so that's not an explanation that makes any sense and uh, the author said that well it's the higher uh, resting energy expenditure that they maintained but this was not actually significant between groups it only turned out to be when they started correcting for body composition which is a little bit contentious and even then it would it was Less than 100 calories a day, so it could not nearly explain the greater fat loss, which was like four, four extra kilos. So they lost like four kilos extra fat. If you just run the numbers, based on the metabolizable energy and see the adipose tissue, uh, on less than 100 kilo kilocalorie difference a they cannot make a four kilo uh, difference in fat loss over that diet period. So that that simply doesn't make any sense, especially not we also factor in that they lost a bit more fat-free mass, which also costs um, energy. So uh, it's very weird if you look at these results. Like, hey, what, what does this uh, mean? Well. Usually, in these kind of studies, especially when you look at obese, sedentary individuals, there's one very, very big factor that everyone that reads a lot of research, especially diet research, first looks at, and it's diet adherence. Now, in this study, uh, it was pretty bad because it was... Actually, let me pull it up. Okay, 51 subjects and only 36 completed the study per protocol. And per protocol, in this case, uh, didn't mean, like, they actually followed the study to the letter. Uh, It was uh, one of the most lenient definitions of per protocol that I've uh, seen. And it meant that they weren't gaining weight when they were supposed to be losing weight. So imagine this, right? They were supposed to be in 33% energy deficit. And if you're gaining weight, well, you must be in considerable energy surplus, you know, in, in a week. So you're probably in like 10% energy surplus or so, and maybe even more, which means that they were overeating by about 40% to be non-per-protocol. So the, the range of... Diet adherence, which was considered acceptable in the study, was about 40%, which is, you know, huge. So, uh, and even then, you know, uh, about a third of subjects could not meet that definition of per protocol. So, yeah, what was the diet adherence? You can also see if you look at the data, and let me pull it up. It was like, yeah, it was like in the continuous diet group, basically what you saw was that after 12 weeks, they just stopped losing a significant amount of fat. So they just couldn't sustain it any longer. This is what you see in most research. Like most people, you can just, if you push them, they can hold on to like any type of diet, whether it's Atkins or Mediterranean or paleo or keto or diet breaks or non-diet breaks. You know, most people, if you they have some incentive, they, they can push themselves for a little bit. problem is that they do it in unsustainable ways and therefore they cannot sustain the fat loss. And what you saw in this study was, well... The the, the difference in fat loss was basically those last four weeks, whether whereby the or wherein the diet group still kept on losing fat. Now you could say, well, okay. uh, So the plausible explanation for this study is that the diet break it doesn't really help physiologically speaking, but what it does is it makes people that have terrible diet adherence be able to stick to their diet a little bit longer. Well, that could be a good thing. Uh, My problem is. Does it actually help them in the long run? Because we've looked at, we've had a, the, our green study they mentioned before. They looked at like what a year later the results were and they found no significant differences. So it doesn't appear that the, the diet breaks actually help make the diet more sustainable. I mean, by definition, that's basically the problem with a diet break. It doesn't make it more sustainable. It's just running away from the problem and seeing if it's if it's still there if you come back. Now, if you're in contest prep, this can make sense. Like if an individual simply cannot sustain like a six month contest prep in one go, and they have the time and they want to get absolutely shredded, then it can make sense to do diet breaks. Basically, you're just saying, well, I can't do it in one go. I need those breaks to be able to sustain it. That's, uh, I think, a sensible way of incorporating diet breaks. But if you're just doing this to get like 10% body fat, you know, like you just you just want to be six pack lean as a guy, or uh, maybe not even six pack lean, just satellite free, Still have your menstrual cycle and be healthy as a woman. Uh, then I think you really shouldn't need the diet breaks. Plus, even if you take these results at face value, then you're looking at doubling the duration of your diet. You know, that's uh, it, it's not like oh the diet breaks. You know, they, they have a bit of success, so we should use them. No, you're you're literally talking about doubling the duration. So instead of uh, 16 weeks, I think it was, you're, you're looking at 32 weeks. You know, that's huge. That's a huge time investment. That if you don't do the diet breaks, you could spend all of that time bulking. So, the, the diet breaks are at best like even taking, ju- even just cherry picking the Matador study, ignoring all the other studies like Arguin and Wing and Jeffrey, I think it was one of the first ones, and a couple more that had crappy designs that are barely worth mentioning. But uh, even ignoring all of that, basically, you just take these results at face value, then you're still looking at, well, if you double the duration of your diet, maybe you end up with uh, a slightly higher metabolic rate, uh, which is probably just because they. Uh, they, they stuck to the diet better and completed the diet in half the uh, or in twice the duration, so basically the energy deficit over time was half uh, then you 're still looking at yeah it 's a terrible investment and probably you'd still just be better off with rather than doing sixteen weeks of thirty three percent deficit um, you you just do thirty two weeks consistently without diet breaks but with sixteen percent deficit that would probably help more in terms of muscle retention. Because then you're actually um reducing the the stimulus for the body the stress uh of muscle loss, like if you're in a very small deficit, you probably won't lose muscle mass uh, in this case, they probably shouldn't lose much muscle mass at all because uh, they were uh, obese and pretty sedentary, so I think you you'd have better results that way, just having a small deficit than aggressive deficit with diet breaks and-
0: yeah uh yeah, so i'm <laughs> I should be kind of uh, playing the devil's advocate here, but that's. That, that's one thing that I that makes me skeptical about the kind of metabolic benefits of these uh, refeeds and diet breaks is a lot of the times that what I see is that the people who swear by doing these have kind of a history or not a history, but just the, their genetics just make it so that they have to go quite low in calories. So maybe a, you know, 80 kilo guy who is at six pack level or maybe 8% body fat at 80 kilograms or so will have to diet on 1500 calories. So they do these refeeds and they have a couple of higher days during the week. But on the rest of the days, they are starving. (laughs) Like they will be eating 1200 calories or a thousand or whatever. It's like, well, I mean, no offense, dude, but it doesn't seem like you're gaining that much ground. I mean, (laughs) the weekly average is still freaking low. So if I was seeing something like, okay, you're eating overall substantially higher calories if you average things out, then that would make me convinced. But this way, eh not so much
1: yeah I know I know a lot of uh YouTubers that that are like behind the scenes honest about what they do for like 10k challenges ah. and a lot of them say like yeah it's like one to two weeks of hardcore dieting and then you do the 10k challenge uh, or you do the dieting afterwards and then you basically yeah average out <laughs> so it's not like you know you you do that like every week and uh, it's all great plus I know that uh, uh, quite some people that, that do this uh, and you can actually look at this like uh, some from some YouTubers that are like, yeah, the the diet breaks or like the refeeds, the cheap meals, I mean like key to my success. And they always take like pictures of whenever they're making cheap meals. And that's the easy sell on Instagram, right? You show a good body, you show that you're eating pizza and ice cream and all these things that people would ideally want to eat. Uh, And you say like, look, you can have all of this uh, and look like me. And then, you know, the the subtle is like if you buy my products or you do my coaching or whatever. Uh, but usually what you see is that uh, either it's not sustainable at all, like they are suffering uh, most of the time, and they have like one 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 day a week where they actually feel somewhat okay, or it's just not long-term uh, sustainable at all. Like a lot of people do, so for example, a contest, and they're very lean and they're happy with that, and then they maintain that shape somewhat with like basically crash dieting, diet breaking, sort of yo-yo dieting for like a year, sometimes two years, people that maintain, and then they... They basically crash completely and uh, they basically get fat. You see this so, so often and then they just stop making posts. Or All of their posts on Instagram or YouTube uh, are like flashbacks (laughs) rather than uh, their current condition, you know? So I really wouldn't say there's like any uh, strong anecdotal support even for for die breaks or refeeds having such a good track record. I'd say it's really exclusively in contest prep. Uh, And that's where an area where I'd say like with Eric Helms, I think it can make sense, you know, like I said. I'm not a big fan of it. Like I'd rather just do it slow and steady uh, rather than with brakes. But uh, I think a break could make sense. I think the the, the slow and steady, the big advantage compared to a brake is that what we see in some research, like uh, uh, I think Wing and, Wing and Jeffrey or Jefferson was like the first study that looked at this. They found that after the brakes, people had more difficulty with especially um, things that have to do with habit formation so if it's like weighing themselves they did not do that as frequently uh, they had to sort of redo their meal plans and see um, they had difficulty with more with food cravings because if you do the diet break and you know for two weeks like extreme example you do like a high protein cheesecake and that's like what you eat with dessert for example and then every other two weeks you switch back to regular cheesecake well, then when you switch back to the dieting, that high-protein cheesecake is gonna feel terrible. You know, it's like, oh, it's just the worst version of the other one. And you're, you're constantly made aware of this by the fact that you're reintroducing that food. But if you just stick to the high-protein cheesecake, and research also shows this cognitive neurosciences, if people stick to, for example, eating vegetables, the reward center patterns in the brain actually activate more. So if you always stick to healthy, low-calorie foods, you learn to like them more. And in general, people learn to like foods that they consume more, more. So that's, that's a win-win. And that's also basically how you teach people to, to eat healthily and how kids start liking vegetables and uh, acquire tastes like coffee how we learn to like those it's just exposure and not having alternatives that are uh, better tasting uh, in your basically your internal menu so I think the diet breaks actually maybe more hurtful than beneficial in terms of diet adherence uh, in that in that sense as well uh, so oh yeah, you asked about the study that we did so interestingly so I've basically um This was already my view on the Matador study, but uh, as you can probably guess, it hasn't changed based on um, (laughs) the study that we did. So basically, we replicated the Matador study. And I can't give all the details yet until it's at least published uh, at the conference uh, soon in September. But basically, we replicated the Matador study. And this time, in strength training individuals, actually paid much more attention to that they were sticking to their diets. Uh, So, you know, people that know how to track their macros and are supervised in doing so and it, it didn't pan out there were some hints that it was more psychologically bearable but yeah you know given the extra duration the fact that they basically just took twice as long in our study it wasn't uh, quite twice as long but it just took a lot longer so yeah it makes sense but physiologically no it our, our results aligned with the vast majority of literature that uh, any type of uh, cycling of calorie or nonlinear in your dieting it doesn't matter for your body composition or your resting metabolic rate like your metabolism uh, it, it's only a psychological factor and that factor, I'd say, is, is probably equated for saying duration of dieting, negative, not positive.
0: Okay, so um, my, my question to you then would be, what would it take for you to buy into refeeds or diet breaks? Like, what? Like give me a, a hypothetical study setup and result or maybe something that you would see anecdotally that would make you go, God damn it, this seems actually legit.
1: Uh, It would be pretty easy, honestly, like any type of these studies, like the Matador study with better adherence. uh, If our own study had uh, found these things, I think our own study was good. So that's, you know, that's exactly the design I would would want. Strength training individuals that knew how to track their macros, uh, adherence closely monitored. Uh, If we had found more fat loss in the diet break group, that would have very strongly caused me to uh, rethink all that I knew on on diet breaks and uh, on human metabolism in general, honestly. So uh, the the, the previous Bill Campbell study, but with the measurement points uh, being done, not after the the refeeding, yeah, most, most studies, like the the study or the Wing and Jefferson study that didn't find benefits, like if they had found benefits, uh, that would have definitely surprised me. So I think it's not that hard to find benefits, and with refeeds, we really don't have a good study that equates total weekly energy intake in both groups, and then measures like the long-term results. So uh, that, that's, that's an area where we simply would want to study, but I think based on the research we have on, on leptin, uh, I wouldn't get my hopes up.
0: Hey, uh, do you enjoy this episode? If so, would you please drop a five star rating on this podcast on iTunes? Thanks. let's continue. and the you know your some of your respected colleagues, a lot of bodybuilding coaches, these types of people that are anecdotally reporting a lot of benefits from them. how would you explain that do you think that they are just uh, conflating what ends up happening, which is just an overall reduction in the energy deficit? which results in better lean mass retention, less problems with women losing their cycle and, and, and these sorts of things, and that is facilitated by refeeds, at least in part? Or what would be your hypothesis there?
1: I think it's the combination of uh, it being an easy sell. Like, uh, very few people, I think, would especially in contest prep, would say no to a diet break, especially when an authority uh, justified it for you. So. Let's say you hire a coach. We mean you, know, you consider them and you have them in high regards. You trust in their authority. And they say like, "Well, we're going to get the same results or better results with diet breaks." And the people are, of course, you know, awesome. And then if the coach doesn't factor in the time component, because that's the big thing, right? Like, sure, if you just have, you have one person that does a bit like the monitor study, one co- study or one individual does contest prep six months straight on stage. Okay, back to bulking. The other individual takes like eight months uh, to do the same diet. But they have the diet breaks. I think they'll actually get, well, probably about the same results, but maybe slightly better results because they just have longer to get into shape. So basically the the average deficit over time is simply lower. And like I said, I think it would be better to just have a low deficit continuously than uh, do diet breaks. But still, you know, you're, you're, you are talking about a lower average deficit over time. So that may be beneficial. Uh, and if you simply don't count the time factor, you say that, look, we, we got them into shape. Maybe they, they liked it more. Uh, it's something that you, know, you can definitely uh, tell people like on Instagram and during diet breaks, you're like, oh, this feels so good. And then if you don't factor in the fact that, well, we could have also done this in two months less time, then uh, it, it may seem like something that really works well. But if you factor in that, yeah, it it takes a lot of extra time and really probably you could have just gotten the results in less time, then it it doesn't look so appealing anymore. That's the thing with as as a coach as well. What I see is that um, other other than just people buying into it and basically having a placebo effect, like if you have any special methods, uh it's really uh easy to just look at like the total success and not what it what it took like if i have for example a method that is actually super effortful and and, like um people would hate for example but i think it's like slightly better results and it would be very easy for me to say like yeah this 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 is better but you don't factor in the costs that are associated with your method
0: oh yeah actually uh glad you mentioned that because i totally forgot do you still use uh calorie cycling so going much so you're basically doing the anti diet break or anti-refeed approach it's like a reverse th- refeed in a way so you're keeping calories higher and then on in the time periods outside of the anabolic window you would drop calories pretty low do you still do that
1: yeah i'm, I'm actually a big fan of calorie cycling and strength training individuals specifically putting the calories more on basically the training days, but formally in the anabolic window. So especially in the period between the workout and bedtime. And I think there the plausible mechanism is, and we have a couple studies that actually look at this, whether, for example, uh, you ate like 70% of energy intake in the morning, train around midday, uh, or you have 70% of energy intake and while still training at midday in the later part of the day, and they have better um, nutrient partitioning. So a better ratio of lean to non-lean loss or gain of mass. So basically, um, the, the theory there is that if you have put your calories more after your workouts, your body will preferentially utilize them for muscle growth. And we know that energy balance can facilitate protein balance. So I think, you know, there we, we at least have a plausible mechanism, although research on like acute effects on, on protein synthesis are a bit lacking. But at least, you know, it's, it's, it's somewhat of a plausible mechanism and there's some empirical support for it. Uh, plus, I think it's, it's generally well tolerated, like after your workout, people like to um, indulge a bit more and have like the relaxed phase of their day, uh, so I think it also makes sense. Uh, I'm doing it slightly less extreme than I think when I used it with uh, when we still work together, um, but I also like uh, going really low in, in calories like one day a week, which is almost like an, an alternate day fast period, indeed it's sort of an opposite of a refeed, because uh, it's like one day sort of crash diet. And there we actually see in research that people generally find this equally acceptable or they prefer it. And if you do this in strength trainees, which we have very little research on, I think it makes sense to put, to if you get at least the same results, to put more calories in the anabolic windows where they may facilitate muscular recovery. Uh, interestingly, we have at least two studies showing better diet adherence with uh, somewhat alternate day fasting type setups, which suggests that people may find like short aggressive deficits more tolerable than like long dragging ones, even if they're more moderate. But most research finds that it's like the same results. And I think it's the benefit is mostly that you could put more calories in your anabolic windows where they're more likely to help muscle growth than that you're just getting into fat storage. Now I think the main thing is that if even if you think like, I'm not sure about that theory, the way most people diet is like the opposite of that. Like most people think like you have the same energy intake every day. So you're like in the same energy supply or deficit across the week, right? That's not the case at all because you have the energy expenditure of training. So on a training day, let's say your resting energy expenditure is like 2000 calories and your training energy expenditure is like 500 calories. And you're dieting with a 10% deficit. So on average, you're like at uh, 2200 calories or so. Now, what that actually means is that you're in a 300 calorie deficit on your training days because you have 2,000 resting energy expenditure plus the 500 from training. You're 200 under that. So across the week as a whole, you're an energy deficit, indeed. But your deficit comes from your training days, and on your rest days, you're in 2 to 300 calorie surplus. Now, I think that is is very likely. Uh, suboptimal. So I think at least you want some type of calorie cycling, at least a little bit. Like I think Martin Burkham used 20% differences between training and non-training days. Uh, I think that's a bit arbitrary, like 80-20 rule burrito sounds good. Uh, I think you at least want to sort of uh, um, negate the fact that you are now in energy deficit on your training days. Like You want to be in energy surplus. Like Maybe you don't have to be as extreme as I do it with some clients, but I think it does make sense to, to account for the fact that you also have training induced energy expenditure. So just at least offsetting that I think makes a lot of sense, but you know, it's an area where we don't have that much research uh, and maybe it only applies to the day itself or a relatively acute anabolic window period, like post-exercise, the first couple hours. Um, This is an area where we definitely need some more research, but I think it's a plausible theory and at least it seems to provide at least equally good results.
0: So um, one of the things that I kind of learned through your work is that a lot of the things that anecdotally, basically everybody reports during a severe diet, which is I'm irritable, I have mood swings, I have less mental energy, my cognition is impaired, and I cannot sleep, very common. Um, What I learned through you in great part is that a lot of that is just in our heads, um, would you say something about that? Because I think for many people hearing that who have completed a lot of diets before is almost insulting in a way. So what would you say about that?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a bit of a matrix red, red slash blue pill scenario. Right. Where you, you find into that, uh, but there is actually a ton of research that supports this That you know, if you, if you look at anecdotally, individuals say hey, you're on a diet, it seems hard. If you look at research you don't see these effects at all. Like, I think a big factor is you don't look at people in contest prep. So most of these individuals just have healthy body fat levels or they're even overweight. So I think that's that's part of it. But at least until you get to basically unhealthy body fat levels, potentially unhealthy body levels, um, research also in military, they're lean, finds that your energy intake has basically zero effect on your sleep quality, on any measure of like reaction time, uh, cognitive batteries of tests, uh, mood states. Uh, just, just basically any any psychological or cognitive measure you can do, research finds that uh, energy intake per se has no effect on that. And the big difference is that what we, you can do in research and what you can never do yourself is that in research you can be blinded to the diet you're on. And that means that, for example, you're consuming a purely liquid diet or you're consuming a purely gel-based diet. This is what they do in research. Or military, that's just rations. You know, the, the military, they, they don't know what they're eating, they just eat what they're, they're given by the canteen. You know, So you don't know if they're in like 40% energy deficit, 20% energy. Whereas most of us that we're dieting, we we know very well that we are now going to be cutting. We're, not only that, we know like this is a 20% deficit and sometimes we know now we're in a 30% deficit. And it also seems like in our language, energy, you have lower energy intake. It's an un- unfortunate fact that we conflate in our language, physical energy, which is kilojoules and work, mechanical work. Uh, and we conflate that with mental energy, which really doesn't uh, relate at all to, to physical energy. It's more motivation, uh, cognitive prowess, uh, mental acuity. You know, these factors, they have very little to do with energy intake. They're, they're, they're neuronal effects, you know, just the neurons have to fire. Uh, and the, Well, they need a little bit of energy uh, for that, theoretically, but it's it's pretty trivial. So we, we have this thing in our language and uh, anecdotally because we're basically inducing a huge nocebo effect in ourselves. Like You say we're going to be cutting, we're going to be restricting energy intake, and that just induces a feeling of deprivation because you have to constrict yourself, you have to consume less than you would want to eat. So basically, by, by definition, the fact that you are going on a diet, a weight loss diet, or. You're going to cut is restricting yourself and that leads to a feeling of deprivation and i think that's the key difference is that not, you basically all of us are pretty obsessed when it comes to nutrition that, that's basically the way it is like we are focused so much more on nutrition than most people most people just eat you know and in the military they just eat and in these studies as well they don't even know they're, they're participating in weight loss study they just eat you get gels they get liquid diet whatever Uh, They just eat that and they don't focus on, they're not constantly thinking about how am I feeling? Did I consume enough carbs? Oh, I feel a little bit faint. Maybe I didn't have enough carbs, you know? I I see this all the time in clients. And it's we're so focused on our nutrition and our training that we we miss super obvious big causes and sleep is the biggest one. I always ask my clients when they're like, oh, I don't, I don't feel, I feel a little bit faint these days. You think You think we need to maybe adjust my energy intake? First thing I always ask, how much have you slept? And they're like, yeah, about four four hours the last night. It's been really stressful at work. Okay, well, there you go. You don't sleep much, you get tired, you know? So we're so focused on nutrition that we always think everything we feel, everything that goes on in our head, like it must be our diet. No, it rarely is.
0: Yeah, so so then let me ask you this, because sleep is a big one. And I frequently thought that, ma'am, I know that dieting success is, more than just rationally deciding that I'm going to get to 8% body fat, because there's more things going in. But I many times felt that, man, if I could just knock myself out with a machine at night and sleep nine hours, it could literally be as simple as just rationally deciding to get to 8% body fat. But... How would you explain the phenomenon that many people feel during contest prep or when they're getting very lean that they're waking up at 3am, 2am, unable to fall back asleep and that they consistently find that this happens during dieting and their sleep goes to shit right away? um is and, and there are obvious causes like abusing the shit out of caffeine during the diet or things like that but when that doesn't happen why do you think that is i think it's the stress and i think at very low body
1: fat levels it may actually make sense although i personally don't experience it uh, much at all unless i wake up because i'm literally just hungry hunger actually is a potent cause like if you're hungry maybe that wakes you up but i think it's mostly the stress and much of that stress comes not just from, from being super lean and low energy intake being low energy intake actually doesn't cause much stress it may actually be healthy like as the recent resurgence of fasting research is uh, showing but uh, being super lean elevates cortisol levels and you're generally you're talking about contest prep level at this yeah. point um but if you add to that the stress of dieting because it's it's simply something you're focusing on you're putting a lot of effort into it you want it to be successful and you're very preoccupied with it so i think with those factors you're basically it's the same obsession those ego effects as with your mood state and everything plus hunger and that is a very um, self-fulfilling spiral especially if that results in some sleep deprivation if you wake up like once or twice because of hunger then you're probably also more stressed about the fact that you may be waking up and it's going to interrupt your sleep so i think it creates a negative spiral where you're just very focused on it uh, and stressed about um because even if you're the fact that you are aware of it uh, it's not just pure nocebo you know it's you are you do have to put effort into it like in those studies people don't put effort into it they don't know the researchers divide you know create their diet for them they even give them their food choices like a metabolic war studies and military study gel studies etc so uh, it does cost more more effort and anything we do that we put like if we take on any big project in our lives that is in itself a form of stress you know so uh, there is something to it that if you take on uh, a, a big diet uh, and it's like it's very important to you uh, that is going to cause some stress and that may disrupt sleep but i think by far the most most of that effect is just nocebo and obsession um, and potentially hunger
0: so you w- would acknowledge that being hungry so for example you're dieting and you don't time your meal correctly and your stomach is pretty empty by the time you go to bed, then that hunger can still hit you while you're sleeping, for example, and that can disrupt sleep.
1: Definitely. There's actually good research showing that most of the negative effects of dieting are mediated by hunger. So that's also where, you know, uh, being hangry comes from. Like most of the the depression in mood states and being more irritable in research, we can explain by hunger because hunger really predictably makes us more irritable. Uh, makes us hungry, uh, So uh, that actually makes a lot of sense. That's just a very physical mechanism. Um, but that's not, necessarily, like, that's not necessarily related to energy intake, because in research, we see that uh, hunger is also very psychological. So for example, if you give people like, a certain meal or a milkshake, what it was in one study, and you tell them, like, this is like 600 calories, this is a really indulgent milkshake, and the other group, you give them the exact same milkshake, but you tell them, like, this is a very lean milkshake, it's basically protein powder and uh, skim milk. And then you measure their, their mood states and their hunger level. And they're actually more satiated when they think they have consumed more calories. So even the hunger effect itself is very susceptible to nocebo, to, no SIBO, to you know, your mind uh, paying tricks on you and being obsessed with the fact that you are now in energy deficit. Uh, but yeah, it's the, even, even that aside, hunger is like a very physical thing and that can profoundly uh, deregulate how we, how we feel.
0: Right. So the the notion that an energy deficit is not necessarily disruptive to sleep quality and cognition, that is couched with the caveat that that is if your hunger management strategy is on point and if you're maybe not at the point in terms of your body fat percentage where hunger is going to be inevitable, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Awesome. That makes sense. Cool. Um. Hope someone who is listening to that and is planning to interview Mano is going to pick up on some of these topics because I think these are really cool to talk about so uh yeah meno i basically asked you all my questions so thank you so much for doing this uh um, pleasure good timing yeah yeah so just please give a short plug of uh, where people can find you
1: sure yeah if people um um like this interview and like oh this guy uh, i want to hear more of what he has to say uh, he's, he's not as stupid as, as he looks then uh, you can go to my website and best way to get to know my content is to go subscribe to my email course, which uh, I will spam the crap out of uh, if you go on my website. So it's impossible to miss. And you plug in your email, you get like a tour of my most popular contents, uh, some stuff from my PT course, uh, freebies, uh, a lot of good stuff. And then in the end, of course, I try to sell you the PT course, uh, but you don't actually have to buy it. You can just take the freebies
0: Alright, guys, thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And once again, if based on what you've heard from me, if you've been following my work for a while, you would be interested in working together with me, having me as a coach and someone who would guide you through to achieve your muscle building and fat loss goals, then you can read up on my services at ablessd.com. You can email me at the address that is linked in the show description and if you just enjoy listening to these episodes then i would really appreciate you dropping a five-star rating on the sustainable self-development podcast on itunes that will be actually beneficial for everybody because i will be able to get more high quality guests on the podcast and that will be fun for you it will be fun for me so please do this a little bit of favor for me so that would be pretty much it thank you for hanging around up until now and we will hear each other in the next episode